When I use the words civil disobedience, I'm just going to ask you, what, what images come to your mind? I'm going to guess that depending upon what part of the world you're from uh, and probably the decade or the decades you've grown up in, different images are going to arise. Uh, we'd have lived in the United Kingdom in 1928. You would recall the British fight for women's suffrage. Uh, despite years of calling for the right to vote, the voices of women throughout the UK were intentionally suppressed. Desperate to be heard, a group of women from the National Union of Women's Suffrage Societies disrupted, this was kind of interested, the Parliament proceedings. They changed, they did, they did this, they literally chained themselves to railings, they distributed pamphlets, uh, ultimately they organized lectures, demonstrations, and all of it came to result in the right for women over the age of 21 to vote. India, the year 1930, you'll remember, brought a number of acts of civil disobedience, all aimed at overturning what was called the SALT Act of 1882, which, uh, if you think back to, with me, just prohibited the people of India from collecting, producing, or selling their own salt. It's kind of, kind of hard to imagine today, but... Uh, that's how the British did it. Uh, led by Mahamat Gandhi, 78 individuals became tens of thousands of individuals, all of whom marched the now famed 240-mile path to the Arabian Sea, peacefully protesting. Uh, April 6, 1930, salt was lifted from the ground in Dandi, openly defying British law. In the year uh, 1987, uh, civil disobedience was enacted against the Soviet Union in Estonia. Uh, the Soviets were beginning to exploit Estonia's rich phosphorus deposits to use in the making of fertilizer. This, of course, resulted in the contamination of Estonia's drinking water. It was, it was unsafe to drink. While the Soviets uh, sought to silence protesters, students from Tartu University persisted and speaking out against the government, despite ordinances against such. In the end, I remember with me, the students and the country of Estonia prevailed, causing the Soviet government to halt production. Of course, I, I could go on right now, right? Uh, in our own country, we witnessed acts of civil disobedience around issues like civil rights, abortion, the Keystone Pipeline, racial issues. Most recently, along with um, our Canadian friends, Canadian truckers, uh, vaccine mandates, all of which raise a critical question. I want you to kind of get this in your mind today. Is there ever a time when civil disobedience might be considered biblically right? If so, how would you determine that? How would you determine when disobeying the law or our governing authorities is consistent with Scripture and when it's not? Uh, in today's episode, I, I want to step into this topic, the topic of civil obedience. I want to do it carefully, but, but intentionally. On the one hand, I want to recognize that much of what takes place in the name of civil disobedience is really not biblical at all, though, though some would claim it to be. On the other hand, I do want to recognize, particularly as we look at Daniel chapter 6, that there are times when our faith, catch this, actually demands it demands it, an act of civil disobedience. Our episode today is going to be a little bit different. Uh, we're going to take this topic on uh, over the course of two weeks versus one. So I want to I want to take us this week through 
uh, an act of civil disobedience uh, in the Bible. And then week two, really ask the question, what does this mean for us? We'll get to that next week. So let me just tell you that one of the things that really got me thinking about this topic is a book written by uh, Dr. Joel Bierman. Uh, the title of the book, I really like this title, is Holy Christian. Uh, in his book, Dr. Bierman's goal is to really explore in a holistic way what might be called the dual citizenship of Christians. I know different theological families use alternative terminology for this, but most Christian theologians really do try to address the idea that followers of Jesus have to find the right balance in their lives between what it means to be a citizen of the state and what it means to be a citizen of the kingdom of God. The reality is we're, we're dualistic citizens, uh, followers of Jesus. We, we are. And in fact, to live apart from either citizenship is dangerous and maybe spiritually misguided. Now think about this with me. If we live only as citizens of the kingdom of God, we cut ourselves off from the very world God has called us into as agents of change. There's a reason that the Bible calls us salt and light. Our calling is to join God in his mission, to bring people into his kingdom. If we live effectually in an exclusive Christian bubble, we're not in step with that calling. I like the one, the way one theologian says it. Um, I just love this wording. He says, we are in the world, not of the world, but we are for the world. Those words say a lot. We're in the world and for it, yet not of it. I kind of like that. Should we live differently than the world? Of course we should. That does not mean, however, that we place ourselves into Christian bubbles or separate ourselves from the world, which is, of course, the second half of the equation. If we live only as citizens of the world, we miss our calling. Uh, are we citizens of the state? Yeah, we, we are. In fact, this is where I, I really believe Behrman's book becomes very helpful. Uh, we should, he suggests, act as good citizens, seeking and working for the common good of all. If we get so wrapped up, however, in, in the needs of this world, we miss our calling to be agents of the gospel which is what I think makes the topic in front of us, uh, civil disobedience, so really very tricky. Three, three questions that I, I really want to ask. The first question is, what is it? What is civil disobedience? Second question, is there ever a time when it's biblically right? Finally, how, how do you know? How do you know when civil disobedience is right and when it's wrong? Can you know? So let's, let's just start with definition. I know there's probably a lot of ways people go at defining civil disobedience. I happen to like the definition utilized by Robert Galante, a.k.a. the history doctor. Uh, if you don't know that name, Galante is a 30-year veteran teacher. He's taught uh, American history for, for decades. He suggests that there are three conditions that have to be met in order for something to be considered an act of civil disobedience. Here they are. The first one is the law must be broken, but broken in a peaceful way. That is to say, civil disobedience is not violent in character. And I think that's important, uh, especially in light of some of the violent riots that took place in the aftermath of George Floyd's death. Uh, while, while there were, without question, a number of peaceful marches and demonstrations calling for reform, any acts that involve defacing uh, the destruction of property, 
coupled at times with physical violence, even the use of weapons, those in no way constitute civil disobedience. By nature, civil disobedience is, is peaceful, though it does involve an intentional breaking of the law. Secondly, it's public. Civil disobedience does not occur in a closet. It's done in a way that does not disguise the intent of the individuals participating. Then third, uh, the practitioners of civil disobedience must be willing to suffer the legal penalty attached with breaking the law. I like what Galanti has to say here. He states that, quote, the willingness to suffer the penalty of the law that is broken is what separates civil disobedience from anarchy, end quote. So let, let me just place this into contemporary context. Uh, we're, we're watching this happen uh, today before our very eyes on the Canadian border. Canadian truckers threatened with the loss of their jobs should they refuse to receive vaccinations for COVID-19 have stated that they believe their government is overstepping its constitutional boundaries with this mandate. Now, what are they doing about it? Well, in a peaceful, nonviolent way, they are choosing to break the law by leaving their large rigs in a position so as to block the bridge leading from Canada into the United States. Now, will these truckers be arrested for breaking the law? Ch chances are high, very, very high that they will. Are they willing to be arrested? Yeah, in, indeed. In fact, most of them, when they're interviewed, express their belief that th they're willing to be arrested if it means that their government must reconsider their constitutional boundaries and their rights to mandate. But is it right? I guess that's the bottom line question. Is there ever a time when civil disobedience is actually biblical? Here's why the question has to be asked. Daniel does it. You know, as we rejoin Daniel in chapter 6, we meet him at a place where he actually has no biblical option apart from civil disobedience. So let me just ask you, do you remember the scene? Where we left Daniel last week was at this interesting juncture in which King Cyrus who's just conquered Babylon, is establishing his political court. Now, here, here's what makes this interesting. As Cyrus begins to name the three men who will rule over former Babylon, now New Persia, Daniel is not only one of the three, but he's actually named the chief of the three. I can't, I can't emphasize enough how absolutely shocking this has to have been for the other Persian rulers. There was an expectation on their part that when the new rulers were named, all of them would be Persian. Yet Cyrus, based on what he knows about Daniel, names him effectually his right-hand man in this new region. So, so let me just ask you this. Do you think that the Persian men who had political aspirations took this news, the naming of Daniel, with a grain of salt? Do you think they would have said, oh, well, you know, Cyrus likes this Jewish guy. He wants to serve Nebuchadnezzar. Probably be a really good, good political ruler for us. The answer is no. I mean, in no way. These men were offended, highly offended. So they begin to put into plan uh, an, an action that would dethrone Daniel before he ever had a chance to take the throne of regional ruler in the first place. Now, what our text describes next is thoroughly in keeping with the spiritual law that we talked about just a couple of weeks ago, namely this law, spiritual law, where God and good are present, evil is always nearby.
I'm going to read chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. I want you to pay attention just how crafty and persistent evil is. I'm going to just uh, pray as we begin to look at these two verses. Lord, would you give us your insight as we just read this? Let us kind of see behind these words. What, what is evil doing? All right, chapter 6, verses 4 and 5 reads as follows. It says, Then the commissioners and satraps began trying to find a ground of accusation against Daniel in regard to the government affairs. But they could find no ground of accusation or evidence of corruption. Inasmuch as he was faithful, and no negligence or corruption was to be found in him. Verse 5, Then these men said, We shall not find any ground of accusation against this Daniel, unless we find it against him with regard to the law of his God. I think this is so interesting and telling. You know, just minutes after Cyrus states his intention to name Daniel into political power, those who held power in Persia, namely the commissioners and satraps, began to comb over Daniel's background to find something that would eliminate him from office. In fact, you know, you know what comes to mind? It's kind of, this is kind of fun. Some years ago, uh, I, I had the privilege of serving a congregation in Kansas City as an intern. Uh, we call them vicars. And I'll never forget this one morning waking up to the morning newspaper, only to discover a full paid advertisement from an area church. I, I don't think it's so shocking any of you uh, when I simply observe mo most churches can't afford a, a full page ad, not even at a discount, which, which makes this particular ad stunning to me. You know what the ad was for? Listen to this. There was a Pentecostal church in town getting ready to elect its governing board. Here's what they did. They took out this ad in which every single person up for election to leadership was pictured and named. Now, as you read the ad, the church requested the help of its readers in identifying whether anyone knew of something in the personal or professional lives of those being considered for church offices that would eliminate their consideration. You talk about bold? And that's bold. Think, think about this for a minute. Would you want your picture and name in the newspaper along with the invitation to everyone reading it to submit any dirt that they might have on you? Listen, that's Daniel. Only the individuals looking for dirt were proficient in both Babylonian and Persian law. Surely, they could find something that would disqualify Daniel. They did not. They could not. So what did they do? Plan, plan B. And you heard it at the end of verse 5. They said to themselves, if we can't find anything in the public or even private life of Daniel that disqualifies him, let's look at the biblical laws that we know he adheres to. Maybe we can find something in his Bible that we can nail him on. So once again, they comb through the, the laws of, of the scriptures and they can't find anything. However, evil is crafty. So they cooked up a plan. Remember what the plan was? Although these men couldn't find anything in the Bible that they could accuse Daniel of, they did find a way to use the Bible against him. Here's what they knew. They knew Daniel was a man that followed the Bible faithfully. Now, don't, don't place a false halo on Daniel. He wasn't perfect. He, didn't, he did sin. He's just a human being. But he was faithful to the calling God gave him. And one of the things he was faithful to was prayer. Daniel would pray three times a day. 
there's, of course, precedent for this uh, pattern throughout the Old Testament. Uh, in effect, I see it as a beautiful invitation. Uh, prayer is to join our three in one God in conversation. Prayer, I like to say it this way, is a huge part of God-sized living. So, so here's what evil did. I think I can just state it this way as evil because that's what occurs here. The commissioners and the satraps, they came to Cyrus and they said, Cyrus, would you establish an irrevocable law prohibiting anyone from praying to a God separate from Cyrus for a period of 30 days? Now, I really want you to think about this. What would you do if your government established a law prohibiting you from praying at the cost of legal penalty? Would you... One, pray anyway, but just do it in private. Two, stop praying. Or three, would you pray both privately and publicly, which, by the way, is the absolute definition of civil disobedience. I want to stop here uh, for this week. We're going to come back to this next week. I want to really ask some questions about what Daniel chooses us to do, what it means for you and I. I, I hope this has been it's been helpful to you. Uh, we're going to continue this thought. This is a really tricky subject. Um, but if this, this podcast is helpful to you at all, I encourage you to pass it on to someone that you know. In the meantime, I pray that you have a God-sized week. <music>